0: Good evening. We want to f- finish the message that we began this morning, the lecture, if you would, because it's, I'm not really approaching it as a sermon, but more as a lecture, as I explained to you. Uh, we are talking about the making and what I call the saving of a constitution, and it's based on the fact that uh, there has been talk and I don't know what's going on with it now in fact because I have looked at it again I have to look behind the scenes see what's going on I'm just praying that changes are not being made and we don't know anything about it um, but at least eight years ago uh, they started to have these meetings about you know and having the input from citizens as what they feel should be changed to anything in the Constitution and one of the items that really caught my attention was this one about uh, individuals who say that the Bahamian should not be regarded as a Christian nation but as a religious nation and therefore the reference in the Constitution to abiding respect for Christian principles should be removed and then insert religious principles but now if you're thinking I hope you realize what that would mean. You know, religious is really not saying anything. he's not saying anything at all, and I tried to demonstrate in my presentation that the, insti- the, 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 the uh, formation of our constitution, whether it was realized or not, really reflects a Christian, what I call a Christian ethos. Or a Christian milieu, a Christian foundation. because it has been demonstrated historically that all of the major civilized constitutions, the nations, civilized nations, are based somewhere on the Bible, somehow. And I'm trying to show that if you take the concept of Christian out of our constitution, then you really make it useless as far as uh, our nation is concerned and I tried to demonstrate that Christian ethos by uh, again you listened I hope this morning to it then I also tried to deal with the relationship between the state and the church because I believe it's important for Christians to uh, understand this because unfortunately not too many well-grounded Christians are involved in politics they complain a lot about politics, but they're not involved. They're not involved in the areas where they can make a difference. For instance, it was demonstrated in the different meetings that were held in 2000. Very few people attended. And only few Christians were there, others Christians that we know of, anyway. But yet, it is quite possible for an amendment like this to be made. Be removed because of the fact that the Christians are not involved. And then, when it is made, be the first ones to make noise and to complain and to criticize. I say that's wrong. That's not being a good Christian citizen. And that's trying to show the importance of our involvement in these political issues. And then I ended this morning by looking at human nature and government, and to try to demonstrate that in order for the government to be a just government, it must be a government that re- understands the nature of man. If just laws are going to be made, they must be made according to an understanding of the nature of man. The fact that man is made in the image of God; therefore, he is able to do good. But if he also fallen, he's able to do. Evil as well. Government and the church working together can bring a balance to our society. But if the Christian has no input into society, then the government will not be able to operate according to biblical principles because those who are responsible for inputting it into the government are not there. Do you understand what I'm saying? and that's my concern that's my passion now i i'm going to give an opportunity for questions and comments but i really want to finish my presentation so we'll leave the questions and answers for the end would that be okay all right let's look then at our, the fourth point or issue that i brought to the colloquium at that time and i call it the moral basis of law and my thesis here is that because law should be the basis of any government whether the law is based upon moral absolutes changing consensus or totalitarian, totalitarian I can never say that word totalitarian totalitarian whim is of crucial importance in a Christian view of government that law must be rooted in God's unchangeable character and derived from biblical principles of morality and that's the gist of what I'm going to say here all political theorists would agree that the law should be the foundation of any government this means therefore that whether law is based upon moral absolutes changing consensus or totalitarian whim is of crucial importance in this regard it is important to note that until fairly recently in his in our history in the western world western culture held to the notion that common law was founded upon God's revealed moral absolutes. That was a given for many centuries. As one legal scholar puts it, quote, there never has been a period in which common law did not recognize Christianity as laying at its foundation. End of quote. Christianity, not religion. That's the important issue. I put it to you therefore that we must not give up this foundation in any reform of our Constitution now or at any other time in the future. There must never be a mere reference to showing an abiding respect for religion in our Constitution. The reference and respect must always be for the Christian religion. Such a concept has always been the inherent core of genuinely just and democratic governments. In the Christian view of government, then, law is based upon God's revealed commandments. Law is not based upon human opinion or sociological convention. Law is rooted in God's unchangeable character and derived from biblical principles of morality. Now, I'm talking about the principle of law itself, not the Ten Commandments, but the law that undergirds any solid government. Such such must... Remain or be placed in a constitution that is committed to respecting Christian values because Christianity is based upon biblical values or biblical revelation. With the upsurge in humanism in the past century, humanity is seen as the source of law. Now remember, I get a back up it explain this. I was asked to approach it not only from a solid biblical perspective, but also from a philosophical perspective. That's why I have to join both of them together. So if some of you seem to think that this seems to be too intellectual. Well, it is intellectual, but I think it's biblical as well. So with the upsurge in humanism in the past century, humanity is seen as the source of law. According to this philosophy, which is pronounced a religion by the Supreme Court in the United States not too long ago, law is merely the expression of the human mind or the human will. Since ethics and morality are man-made, they say, so also is law. Humanist law is rooted in human opinion, and therefore it is relative and arbitrary. It could change. Most of our U.S. and European-trained intellectuals who now dominate the most influential position of power and decision making in our Bahamian nation today was schooled under such humanistic philosophy let me interject we might not uh, understand that but most of our people who are in leading positions today were trained in institutions in europe and in the united states that were based on a humanistic philosophy and it has been demonstrated in our nation as well The results are plain to see by those who have eyes to see and who have ears to hear. However, such anti-God philosophy must be kept out of a constitution that is committed to respecting Christian values or principles. Two important figures in the history of law are Samuel Rutherford and William Blackstone. I spoke to Brian about this, and he said that's correct. He said these individuals, especially Blackstone, are revered in the area of law. These individuals, uh, for instance, Rutherford's Lex Rex, that's the name of his book, written in 1644, had a profound effect on British and American law. His treaties challenged the foundations of 17th century politics by proclaiming that law must be based upon the Bible. Law must be based upon the Bible rather than upon the word of any man. Now this is a leading, loyal man who was involved in lawmaking. And in fact, Brian says that most of our laws today go back I have reference to this man, Blackstone. But until that time, the king had been the law. Rutherford's book created a tremendous controversy because it attacked the idea of the divine right of kings. This doctrine had held that the king or the state ruled as God's appointed regent. Thus, the king's word had been law. Rutherford properly argued from passages such as Romans 13 that the king, as well as anyone else, was under God's law and not above it. Now, that means what he's saying here is that government, the state, is under God's law and not above it. Sir William Blackstone was an English jurist in the 18th century and is famous for his commentaries on the law of England which embodied the tenets of Judeo-Christian theism. According to Blackstone, the two foundations for law are nature and revelation through scripture. Blackstone believed that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom and thus taught that God was the source of all laws. Even such a well-known humanist Uh, noted a well-known humanist noted in his social contract that one needs someone outside the world system to provide a moral basis for law I hope you are understanding what these men are saying that is impossible for just law to be made by man himself it must come from outside of man he said quote it would take gods to give man true laws end of quote the Christian were on this fellow who said this was not a Christian. The true God gives man's law, he said. A constitution committed to respecting Christian values, therefore, was, must recognize this fact and ensure that his laws reflect that understanding. So we're arguing that our constitution must always reflect the concept that the laws come in the final analysis from God and not from man. But unfortunately, much of our modern legal structure is now being influenced by relativism instead of by moral absolute revealed in Scripture. Relativism provides no secure basis for moral judgment. Relativism simply means that things, what you say today could change tomorrow, depending upon circumstances. There are no firm moral absolutes upon which to build a secure legal foundation this legal foundation has been further eroded by the relatively recent phenomenon of sociological law and that's present today as well in this view law is based upon relative sociological standards it depends upon what happens in our society and what is determined to be right or wrong by man as startling as it may sound no discipline is more helpless without a moral foundation than law that's a profound statement. No discipline is more helpless without a moral foundation than law. As one legal scholar has said, quote, Law is a tool, and it needs a Jewish, pru- it need a Jewish prudential foundation. Just as contractors and builders need the architect's blueprint in order to build, so also lawyers need theologians and moral philosophers to make good law. The problem is that most lawyers today are extensively trained in technique, but little in moral and legal philosophy. Until very recently here in the Bahamas, as elsewhere in the western world, legal justice was based upon a proper biblical understanding of human nature and human choice. Criminals, for for instance, were held accountable for their crimes rather than their behavior being dismissed as part of environmental conditioning. And that's happening today in the Bahamas. Hardly anyone is being held responsible for their actions, but rather it's the influence of our culture. One of the problems in our society today then is that we do not operate from a from assumptions of human choice. It's quite uh, we must. Be, this idea must be checked if our Constitution is truly going to show a respect for Christian values and recognize the supremacy of God. The evolutionists and biologists say that human behavior is genetically determined. The behavior says that human behavior, I repeat this, is environmentally determined. I ask, therefore, where is there room for free choice in such a system that argues that argues that actions are a result of hereditary and, and, and environment. In other words if my behavior uh, has its foundation in what my mama, my papa, my grandmama did or because of my environment then I'm not accountable for my behavior personally. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what we must understand here. It is quite evident due to the influence of these secular perspectives that free choice and personal responsibility have been diminished in the criminal justice system in our society. It is therefore not by accident that we have seen a dramatic change in our view in our criminal justice system here. The emphasis has moved from a view of punishment and restitution to one of rehabilitation if our actions are governed by something external and human choice is denied then we cannot punish people for something they cannot control themselves if the influences are merely hereditary and environmental then we must rehabilitate them rather than to punish them However such a view of human action diminishes human dignity and a person who is made in the image of God who by that very his very nature is the person who is able to make choices if a person cannot choose then he is merely a victim of circumstances and must become a ward of the state actually he simply becomes a tool of the state as Christians we must take the criminal act seriously and punish Wrong human choices. While we recognize the value of rehabilitation, especially through spiritual conversion, as we have in John chapter 3, we must also recognize the need for punishing wrongdoing. The Old Testament provision for punishment and restitution makes sense considering the biblical view of human nature. Yet today we have a justice system that promotes rehabilitation above punishment and continues to erode the notion of human responsibility by blaming society for one's choices. This trend, I say, must be checked and checked immediately if we are to truly reflect our constitution that states that the citizens of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas are to show an abiding respect for Christian values. let's look now finally at the biblical purpose of government and here's my thesis in this point a biblical understanding of the purpose of government determines the nature of the church's involvement in politics and whether or not the christian sees the state as an enemy or an ally as an instrument of god or as an instrument of satan Theologically, while other sub-purposes may be cited, the Bible gives two basic purposes for the existence of government. One, to restrain sin and to preserve order. Or to put it another way, to restrain sin in order to preserve law and order in society. By the way, that is why in Romans 13, those who lead us are called the servants of God, because God has appointed them in this area to preserve order by punishing people for their sin. That's why government officials are called the servants of God in the book of in, in the book of Romans. One of the most vital questions one must answer when it comes to discussing the matter of the church and the state is this: What does the Bible say at the about the purpose for the existence of government? Why did God originate it in the first instance? This is so because from a biblical perspective, the answer to this question determines the nature of the church's involvement in politics, one way or the other. This is important for us to understand. It also determines whether we see government as an enemy or an ally, an instrument of God or as an instrument of Satan, something we should embrace or something we should shun. It helps us to set boundaries as to what government should or should not do, thus immediately providing Christians with distinctives relative to why they should or should or should not be opposed or opposed in government. If Christians understand what government is designed by God to do, they are in a much better position to assist that government in remaining true to that purpose and in helping to prevent it from doing what it should not be doing. In the first place. What I'm saying is here, one of the reasons why I believe that really committed Christians are not involved in politics the way they should is simply because they do not understand what the Bible says, what is the purpose for the for the for government in the first instance. Bahamians, on the whole, now look to government to supply what they believe they need in every area of their life, thereby fostering an attitude of dependency on government this has created an overall lack of personal responsibility and initiative on the part of Bahamians and at the same time given government more power over other institutions power such as the home and the church that it should not have for example in government through its various social and educational agencies has proposed and actually it's in practice now and eventually when one considers what has happened to other countries that have sold themselves to United Nations for monetary gain—that's a whole another subject. Well, un- let me go over that one. For example, government through its various social and educational agencies is now proposing, and eventually, when one considers what has happened to other countries that have sold themselves to United Nations for monetary gain, will undoubtedly demand that parents limit the amount of children they have. Some of you say hey, thats outrageous. That's not so. I was in a meeting, um, a, government, a meeting called by the government and with sociologists and so on to discuss uh, um, birth rate and, and uh, about population growth. and it was actually said in that, minute, in that meeting by a government person, that we should actually consider uh, what's the nice word I can say concerning man? doing an operation on men to avoid them from having children. That was actually stated in one of these meetings by a government official, that it should come to a point because of overpopulation in the Bahamas that we should castrate men. You say that's extreme. You see, that's what we say now until it comes about. Now, so my question is this, is this what God intended for government to do? Or is this what we have allowed government to do because of our dereliction of personal responsibility and a lack of biblical information concerning government? Theologically, while other sub uh, purposes may be cited, the Bible gives two basic purposes for the existence of government, and that is to restrain sin and to preserve order. Or, as I said before, put it another way, to restrain sin in order to preserve law and order in society this in fact is what God commands the Christian to pray for relative to government if the church is to accomplish its purpose without undue government opposition listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1st Timothy 2 I urge then first of all that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Do you see what this text is saying? If we want to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, what should we be doing? Praying for those in power over us. What should we be praying for? This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The implication is clear. The church as an institution and Christians as individuals can best perform its divine mandate and citizens can best live peaceful and quiet lives when government is doing its job of bringing about and preserving peaceful conditions in society. And the key to it is the prayer of believers. This passage then also clearly states the primary responsibility of the Christian toward those involved in government. They are to pray that politicians in office come to faith in Christ, and do the job they're supposed to do as a government, and that is cause to preserve peace in the community so that citizens could live a safe, secure, and tranquil life. I say to you again then, and I break away from my presentation here that we got to be careful how we blame those sinners out there for what is going on in our society today according to this passage we are just as much to blame if we do not pray for the salvation of those who rule over us god's word is clear we have to understand that these purposes were initiated from the very moment god established human government in genesis chapter nine when he invested the new representative of the human race noah the power to preserve order in society by restraining and punishing crime even to the point of capital punishment. Listen to his unchanging words in Genesis chapter 9 For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting, I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man also I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I established my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, most biblical scholars agree that this is a timeless mandate, unaffected by race, nation, or dispensation of time. It is applicable to all peoples everywhere for all time. For Bahamians today, please note the underlying biblical facts stated here. God clearly designated that the purpose for government was the securing and preserving of peace and order in society from the very moment of the institution of government. In other words, capital punishment and human government were instituted at the same time. The power to punish is the supreme evidence of the divine authority of the government to exercise punishment to the person who breaks the law. Paul endorses this truth in Romans chapter 13. Listen to these words. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Everyone. Christians as well. In fact, Paul is especially talking to Christians. To submit ourselves to the governing authorities. And that doesn't say whether you are PLP, FNM, or any of the others. It's the government in power, not the individuals, but it's the principle of government, the institution. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God Himself has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against government is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now I want you to read that as a Christian citizen in the Bahamas. For rulers, do no, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. See that? The government really is no threat, should be no threat for those who do right. Christian citizens, for instance, are supposed to do right no threat but they should be a threat to the wrongdoers Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority the policeman then do what is right and he will commend you for he is God's servant you see that that is the same word that has to do with preachers he is God's servant to do you good but if you do wrong be afraid for well, he does not bear the sword for nothing. What is the sword? The power to execute judgment, to execute punishment for sin. He is God's servant. When? When he punishes sin. An agent of wrath. Notice this now. An agent of wrath. Whose wrath? Not the citizen's wrath, but the wrath of God. An agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. Not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience, in other words, towards God. This is also why you pay taxes. Here, you see, we're trying now here. Paul is trying to show that there's a certain deference to government that the Christian citizen must make. We should pay taxes. That shows that we accept that they are there by the authority of God. Now, taxes include, by the way, customs duty when you come into the airport. We laugh at that, we all laugh. But I believe that the most holiest Christian professing to be shows how unholy they are when they come to customs at to the airport. I'm gonna stay on that because I know that's true. That's why I'm so glad I have my wife. You talk to my wife. I can't bring anything that I purchase in the States in the Nassau when my wife is with me. It could be closed I wore, I bought two weeks ago, three weeks before coming back. She said, because it's a, everything you acquire outside the Bahamas. <laughs> I'm serious. so That's why I don't like to travel with really, you, see, because she makes me do that. But some Christians don't care. They look at that as nothing. What are you doing? You're showing disrespect for the government? That's only part of it. You're showing disrespect for God who placed the government there over you. This is serious. We are talking about the input, the necessity for proper input of Christians into our government, and we show disrespect. And we say, "No, we're going to lie." We can say this thing costs fifty dollars when it costs you five hundred dollars. That's a sin against God. All right. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants. Who give their full time to governing. Give everyone you owe what you owe him. Now in context, he's talking about government officials here. This is not just a general statement. it's talking about owing to government. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay the taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Paul is saying this is how we show that we believe that God has set up the institution of government. And so the fact is indisputable. God established government for the primary purpose of restraining lawlessness and preserving peace in society. And invested government with both the authority and power to accomplish that purpose the power to wield the sword of punishment, just punishment. Why is it that God has to give such power to government to restrain crime and preserve order? The answer is quite simple. Biblically speaking, the root cause of crime, rebellion, and violence is the inherent sinful nature of human beings. That's why. Many passages could be brought to validate this fact. Just listen to one of them, James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, we do things that are sinful simply because we want to fulfill our own fleshly desires. God says government is there to prevent you from doing that in a public fashion. By threatening sinful human beings with punishment for violating the law, then following through with that threat when the law is in fact violated, government acting as God's divinely appointed servants can hold man's sinful nature in check. In order to preserve social order and prevent absolutely chaos in a civilized society by forcefully compelling citizens to refrain from criminal behavior. And at the root of it is the sinfulness of man. And the primary purpose of government, according to the scriptures, is to hold down the sinfulness of man in a society by exacting punishment, not rehabilitation. Now, <clears throat> when this biblical purpose for government is understood, it is an easy deduction to make that more time, more money, and more human resources should therefore be put into crime prevention and punishment by our government, which is its primary concern, rather than, for instance, into caring for social aspects of the community, which is not their primary concern. But now you look at the budget, you look at what's happening and you'll see that this is not what is happening the Bible makes it clear government's primary responsibility is to restrain the criminal elements in our society by imposing just laws upon its citizens and following through with just punishment if those laws are violated if it fails here biblically speaking government fails the purpose for being in existence in the first place now of course government cannot cleanse man from his sin or eradicate his sinful nature. Only Jesus Christ through His finished work on the cross can do this. And the responsibility for proclaiming and applying that message is the church, the body of Christ on earth. It is not government. Let me close with a quote from an article written by Tom Rose. It's entitled, The Great Christian Bail Out. Bail is spelled B-A-A-L, as in false god. This is what he says, quote, The prophet Daniel warns Christians that God sets up the basis of men to rule over us. Certainly with men of such spiritual caliber, we can expect no good unless we carefully restrict the power of civil government to its one major godly assignment, to maintain law and order so that free men and women can live peaceful and self-responsible lives. I say government is under God's authority according to Romans 13. And Christians must exercise their responsibility to effect change within this God-ordained institution. It is in this light then and remember now I'm saying this to the people at the colloquium back at that time It is in this light then, as a Christian citizen of the Bahamas, that I strongly recommend that the words and abiding respect for Christian values remain in the preamble to our constitution. I once again thank COB the opportunity of sharing in this colloquium and thank you for your attention and i put this up sila think and act on these things (laughs) a few minutes for questions comments that you might like to ask would you run this around in case somebody wants to ask a question if you have a question or comment you'd like to make by the way let me say something as a result of the message this morning a policeman came up to me. Is he here? The policeman I spoke to. Was, yeah, there he is, right there. Uh, and he made quite an interesting statement. He said, "You know, when we're looking for recruits in—and please correct me if I if I say it wrong—if you when we're looking for recruits for policemen, even the self-defense force, we cannot find men of good Christian character." He says because they are not volunteering. Isn't that what you told me? Now, why did he say that? He's saying that because if. Because he even mentioned that even in the police force, you have a who steal and rob and do things like that. But if we have more Christians involved in that, then we won't see that happening. And see, that's the point I'm trying to make. That's the exact point I'm trying to make. If we as Christians are not involved in these kinds of issues, how in the world can we complain when things go wrong? When God has placed us here as salt of the earth to preserve and light of the world to lighten. It's important for us to be involved. The same issue here. I'm going to be checking further to see who you are in this, because I don't want to wake up one day and I'm suddenly told that the constitution has been changed. Although I think you can't do it with a referendum, but anyway, I'm just trying to make a point. And uh, now that that uh, passage or that uh, that sentence has been removed out of our constitution, we need to be involved quickly. Then, any questions or comments?
1: Uh, Pastor Lee, um, correct me if I'm wrong, please. Um... But I believe um, in the case of Israel, uh, God told them how to keep their constitution pure by how they interact with other nations, um, and when strangers come into their country, how they should take on the laws of the country and not bring their... That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, And I believe you partly answered my question already, but given the fact that today in the Bahamas, you have people of different culture, of different beliefs, faith, and, and in high position as well. How do you keep the Constitution pure given that these people want to see a Constitution that reflects what
0: they believe? Well, that's what I was trying to explain here. First of all, by showing the nature of government itself, the nature of man, and also by showing the importance of our input as Christians. This cannot be done unless it goes to the population for, for, for uh, uh, referenda for voting. It cannot be done. You see? But I'll bet you when it does, you'll find few Christians involved in it. In fact, when they have these meetings, you probably won't have any Christians even talking about it in fact this is going on for eight years now I don't think I've seen anything even in the newspapers from a Christian talking about this this is why I'm bringing this up today on our 35th anniversary of independence Christians need to be involved if we are gonna in any way gonna prevent our nation from going the way of England Canada and now the United States of America Christians have to be involved in a biblical sense in a biblical way not political I think that's one of the big problems in the United States is they're trying to bring the kingdom in themselves. You cannot do that. But it is by each Christian being involved where they are in uh, the operations of of government, of politics, we have to make an impact. We need more Christians, for instance, even in our schools now when we come to our uh, parents and and, and children, uh, parent, what do you call the councils, the uh, PTA, we need more Christians who are giving their voice as to what is going on as far as curriculum is concerned. You see, and all of these things, because that's where the problems start with what our children are being taught. And so, Christian parents are upset when the children bring home the book talking about two daddies and two mamas. But if they were listening, to the children or attending the Parents Teachers Association meetings and so on, they could probably prevent it from happening in the first place.
2: Dr. Sigdale talked about Europe and how Muslims have a 500-year plan. Right. And that if Christians were aware of the 500-year plan, there would be laws in place to prevent the head wrap, the way they dress, because that's a part of the witnessing. How do we begin to practice what you're talking about?
0: Well, that's why I believe it's important for us to keep Christian, that term Christian in there. Because, you see, if you only have religious, then you open your way for that. But if we put it, in, put it as far as Christian is concerned, we say, no, that does not reflect, you see, the foundation or the essence of our constitution and our philosophy as a people. So our constitution can help us to take care of that. Well, and also before we go on and also again it's it's constant involvement and awareness of the christians themselves because you would see a little thing come up at one of the schools but you would see no you wouldn't see christians getting involved and trying to help and see what's being what actually is going on you, you know and so Somebody says, "Well, I want my daughter to come dressed in all of this garb and everything, although it's against the against the the the, 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 the policies of the school, but because it's a religious expression, therefore it's okay to do it." No, our constitution, if you keep it right, would say, "No, that's not
2: true. That's not true." You see. Well, can you can you do another lecture, even if you? Or I think we need to publish this. We definitely have to put it on the radio. Tim Lahey was my pastor with the moral majority. So I came from a very activistic Christian background where we don't allow this stuff to happen. We are aware of all the council meetings. And um, do you think it's feasible? I guess two things here, two statements. Do you think it's feasible? I'll use John Perkins as an example. This is a group, um, what do they call? They're not, urban. Tony is urban. Anyway, it's an urban ministry that is so committed to this, red, yellow, black, and white. They will move, say, to Baintown. They will disciple people. They will do clinics. They will practice this type of what you're talking about very intention- intentionally. Uh, can you write out and, and do another lecture in terms of helping us know how to be more well, my, intentional? My approach is
0: very simple. I have all kinds of criticisms against those kinds of things. Personally. Okay. Because I believe we leave too many things to institutions and sort of marches and all these type of things. You do it once and then it's gone away. Okay. What I like to see is every individual Christian realizing their obligations as Christians. And wherever they are at all times living that out. If Christians simply live out the Christian life, we could battle this thing. Okay. But you see, we're waiting for the institution to do it. Okay. No, no, no. I'm saying, wherever you are, whatever organization you may be, whatever group you may be in, make sure that you put out, you voice Christian principles. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm talking about. Well, my... Now, uh, what I'm saying with these groups, I mean, take, for instance, today, let me talk about crime. Let's march down to Rosson Square. Let's go do that. And when that's done, what happens?
2: It's over. It's it's over. It's finished.
0: But if each individual Christian begins to see their responsibility for voicing Christian principles, writing to the newspaper, I open the newspaper all the time, hoping to find something in there from Christians concerning what's going on. Only very rarely do you see it, you see. Or if you see it, you see it from pastors who are regarded as those who are activists and fighting against it, not just quote unquote the ordinary Christians.
2: That's what we need to see. Pastor, you're talking about revival. I mean, because, to be honest, most of you know I'm just moving back home, and I'm so concerned about what's going on. The whole culture is like disintegrated. And so, my sister and I are beginning a new type of Christian school that does what you're talking about. Um, And people think we're crazy, because it's not gonna make money. So, you're talking about a different type of lifestyle that's counterculture.
0: No, no, no. I am talking about the lifestyle of a Christian. That's not a different lifestyle the only point is and I agree with you but the revival is we're not living it you see see, we don't live it The, the point is why it's so odd looking and so abnormal is because most Christians are not living the Christian life we're talking about it but not living it we don't push our principles throughout life we back down from things for instance look at the attitude I just mentioned about coming into the airport big laugh but that's a serious issue that's a serious matter and yet we have people preachers and worship leaders and everybody come in trying to hide and come to church and preach and lead worship and talk about holiness of lifestyle see that's the kind of thing I'm talking about or people who talk about all of the pornography and everything going off in the school and then they go home and watch it on their TV see that's the kind of thing. and you're right revival is something that we need our Christians we as Christians and myself as good we're not Being the kind of salt of the earth that Jesus wants us to be. And there needs to be a change. And that means involvement in government activities, political activities. Individually, not as an institution, but as an individual. That's what I'm saying.
3: All right, one more. Hi, I'm new here. Um, Like her, I just moved back uh, about six months ago. What's your name? Lauren Smith. Great one, good to have Um, you. I came back tonight to hear what you had to say about this, which is very disturbing in America. This is what it's about. That's all they think about. They don't, there is no Christian principles or anything. It's how I feel. Um, it's important for us. I think as a, as a, I've been a Christian for about seven years now, um, you say to uh, principles and where you are, first and foremost, we need to let people know we are a Christian. In the Bahamas, it's very hard to know sometimes that someone is a Christian, all right? They'll come to church, but on their job, people don't know. When someone meets me, that's the first thing I tell them. If I go for a job interview, they say, well, tell me about yourself. That's the first thing I tell them. Um, I think that will help us to start letting these other people know who we are so these Christian principles that our nation is built on can stay in place. Amen. Good. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, Uh, Pastor Fowler, would you close, please? Here's the mic. Thank you again. We appreciate it. By the way, uh, again, I want to remind you that this was a formal lecture that was given. Each one of these points that I gave, I could actually speak a week on each one of the points. And probably we might do it sometime. Pastor Fowler.